All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Wrecked Podcast. Um, Paul and I here at the old Moxie Java in Boise. Good afternoon. And joining us all the way from Michigan is um, Nicholas Wolterstorff. Um, Nick is joining us. Uh, Nick is the author of Lament for a Son, and we've talked about that book a couple different times in a couple previous podcasts. So, Nick, you with us? Can you hear us okay? Yep, I can hear you very well. Yep. So excited for you to join us. Like I said, we've had, uh, this is our 13th, 14th podcast. We started this in, in November, and um, I think it was November, maybe October. And, um, you know, just as a conversation between two dads that, you know, have, are going through their grief journeys at different time periods. Paul, um, yep. like I said, you know, goes back 21 years, and myself, I'm still in the first year of kind of dealing with the tragedy that that I was dealt with, our family was dealt with back in June. And as I look through your your book, and we'll get into it a little bit, yours goes back to uh, loss of your son, Eric, back on June 11th, 1983. So you're approaching 40 years, yep. if my math serves That's me. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So... Nick, tell us a little bit about you and your family, and um, and then we'll get into. I want to absolutely hear about Eric. Um, I've learned a lot about him in reading the book, but just sh- share a little bit about about you and, and your family and Eric. Yeah, so um, my wife Claire and I have five children. Um, Eric was the second oldest. He was twenty five. Um, um, most all of them except the youngest Christopher was still in the house but the others were all I say out of the house but I mean they were in college you know, but they would come home frequently and so forth Eric was um, uh, a grad student in art history at Yale and um, for many years many years I bet for six seven years he had done mountain climbing with friends in western US and um he was in Munich uh, doing research for his art history dissertation. And on a June day, he crossed the border from Munich into Austria and took a standard climb, uh, mountain climb. And it was melting snow that we know now. And um, he fell and uh, was killed, I suppose, almost instantly from slipping, slipping and hitting his head on a rock. Um, so um, he was a very venturous, venturesome person, probably the most venturesome of our kids. Uh, going out on his own to Japan and so forth. Sounds like uh, quite the adventurer. He, he, he was. He was. Um, yeah. Very so very was he was he rock climbing like with the ropes and harnesses or just kind of walk no climbing? no he was yeah. just oh well, walking okay if, <laughs> yeah if well walking I mean climbing walking but no he he was not doing rock climbing no no it was just and I talked to friends afterwards they looked at the guidebook and they said it was it was not a dangerous climb but um, given that the snow was melting it was. Well, it was dangerous on that day. Right. Was he climbing with others? No. Okay. No. Yeah. He, lo- he loved mountain climbing. It was it was a great love of his. Um, I don't think he knew any... 
I'm not aware that he knew any mountain climbers or that he had many friends in Munich. It was, it was, um, uh, I don't know, a, no, a sort of lonesome enterprise of doing your dissertation on a German architect and getting a room in Munich. Um, Do you take... Younger brother, um, younger brother Klaus was ready to join him for the summer. Um, but he, he one of, I, I think it was probably one of the few climbs, in fact, that he did on his own. Mm. I was going to ask if you take any solace in the fact that his accident was doing something that he loved and a big adventure. Yeah, and so from what you tell me, he was doing what he loved, and right. the, the, the death of the death of your of your two children, the death of the children of you two guys, was not doing what they loved. So, so that's a consolation of sorts, I suppose. Not sure. a big consolation. But, uh, right. And how did you hear the news, Nick? How did they contact you from Germany? Oh, oh, I shall never forget. It was on a Sunday afternoon around 3 o'clock, 3.30. Got a call from this landlady in, um, in Munich. And she, she slowly re- gave me the news. Mr. Walterstorff, are you there? Eric has had an accident. But yes, Eric has had a serious accident. Yes, Eric has had a very serious accident. Yes, Eric is dead. So it was his landlady. Wow. Um, so his body was discovered by whatever they call him in Austria with helicopters sort of cruising over the mountains there. And um, he must have had he must have had his local Munich address and his billfold, I suppose. I've never actually asked about that. But anyway, it was his landlady who called it. Yeah, I remember reading that part in your book and, and you describing kind of that day of hearing the news and, um, you know, the way you described your you know, response. I think Paul and I can both yeah. relate very well to, uh, to sure hearing that hearing that news for the for the first time and and what yeah. you go through during all that um, absolutely yeah yeah we all share that yeah yeah absolutely um, and, and it's sudden I mean it's not in, in both in all three of our cases it's not like the death after a lingering illness which you can right more or less more or less repair but this is just out of the blue yeah, in your situation, Bam. similar to to Paul, Paul you know, Paul uh, found out when he was here in the U.S. in Boise, and and uh, his whole family was in Italy at the time. And similar sounds like to you as your your son was oh. in Austria. Oh, or he was not with. He was no. not. Yeah. And no, I was here, and I got a phone call from the U.S. consulate in Italy that couldn't pronounce my name, and I knew it was going to be bad. And then you have to go through the whole figuring out how to get over there and, and bring them back and all that stuff. And that's... Um, I have itself. almost... Amazingly, I have almost no memory of that. So flying over, met a friend in Luxembourg. I took... I somehow got to O'Hare from Grand Rapids in time to... Our son, Koss, was going to join Eric. And so he was standing in line in O'Hare Airport and... Um, when he found his, out? 
he was standing it, when he was standing in line. He, that's when he, he didn't found know him. yet. So I, yeah, so I told him. Oh wow! And I took his used his ticket. I don't know that that would be allowed nowadays. So, and that was a terrible mistake. I should have I should have bought my own ticket, and the two of us should have gone together. But because hmm. you I went you went solo, you went by yourself. I, so I went solo. So I went solo. Oh, I remember the, this, that grim trip from O'Hare to Luxembourg. Ooh, there were lots of young kids on the plane. They were acting it up. And I was just burrowed into darkness. Oh, I bet. Right. Nick, you, um, you titled your book Lament for a Son. And that word... I think I, it just, you know, it's. It, I think it's a fairly unique word, and it, and it, um, in itself, I think captures the emotion or feel or, or kind of the essence of, of grieving over a child. Yep. Tell me, yep. talk to us a little bit about why why that word and what that meant to you, and why you chose it in the title of your book. So I don't exactly remember, but I think it was, I had ringing in my ears the sounds of lament. Um, I think, I'm sure that that's what shaped my thought. It was the sounds of lament, and I thought, okay, so those, there are 20 or so sounds of lament, and this is, this stands in that tradition. Those are sounds of lament over tragedies happening to the psalmist, and this is my lament over the tragedy happening to my son. Um, uh, that, that's the title. The words... Now, this is really mysterious. The words... The best I can say is that the words came to me. I didn't... I didn't fetch for words. I didn't look for words. I didn't grasp for words. They came to me and in a totally different style from anything I've ever written before or since. So, so the writing of it remains a kind of mystery to me. I, I don't, I, I mean, it's not automatic writing. It's not as if I was in a trance, obviously. But so, did you have a motive or a goal or a deadline or? Like, I have to write this cathartically or to help people, or what was your, what got the pen going? What got the pen going was sitting in the Luxembourg airport uh, on my way back, train from Munich to Luxembourg, and I think there was about six hours space between the time the train got in and my plane to O'Hare left. And what was I going to do? I had brought along some reading material, but I couldn't read. I, I, I couldn't concentrate. Right. So all I could do was, is write. And um, it was writing out, putting my grief into words is what it was. And it just came out. And it just came out. Wow. It just came out. And your, your background, Nick, is a... You've written other things. I... Um, stalked you on the internet um, (laughs) 
But you also <laughs> were a you're a professor at Yale, am I right? I mean, you're professor emeritus currently, and is that what? Tell yeah. us a little bit about your professional yeah, background. I taught, I taught for what I taught for thirty years philosophy at Calvin and Grand Rapids here, and then for uh, fifteen years at Yale. This happened when I was still here at Calvin. So I, yeah, I taught philosophy for 45 years and um, wrote philosophy. And what I wrote philosophically is very different from Lament for a song. So, so I, I can't explain it. Yeah. Well, uh, I need to tell you, and I, I wrote this down I, when I was kind of going through some thoughts for this conversation. I need to tell you that your written words perfectly capture the grief trapped inside me. Um, and I, there would be paragraphs that I would read. There would be sentences that I would read, and I would reread them and reread them and just keep going back to it. There was, there's so much in here that I feel like you, you so nicely, I don't know if nice is the right word, but accurately put into words things that I'm still kind of trying to figure out and then all of a sudden I read it and it's like yes that is what's happening inside me like what what the way you capture it um, so I just yeah it's, it's amazing I think the way yeah, that thank you, you so much so, um, so two things about her first um, I resolved I resolved not to write what people not to write what one is expected to write but only to write what I actually felt and so I'm sure you found that some of it is very raw and probably difficult to read for the first, I don't know, four or five months after the death of your child. Uh, the other thing that I want to say takes a little bit longer. That's okay? Absolutely. So um, Calvin College has what's called the Calvin Prison Initiative in a, in a state Men's State Prison, about 25 miles to the east of where Calvin is located. They give, um, they teach regular college courses and, and over five years give a regular baccalaureate degree each year to about 30 prisoners. Um, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, a younger philosopher, friend, colleague of mine, Kevin Corcoran, was teaching a course to these prisoners in Hamlin State Prison. And uh, on his syllabus, he had lament for a son. Um, now, I have no idea how, in a regular college course, you could teach lament for a son, I suppose. I don't know. I, I think I couldn't stand it, but I suppose the professor says, uh, <laughs> Do you agree with what Professor Walterstorff says on page 57 about theology? Anyway, mm-hmm. so Kevin inter- so so these so Kevin says happens to remark that he knows me and that I live in Grand Rapids. So the prisoners say to him, "Well, will you invite him to come and come to our discussion of his book?" So Kevin did, and I happily agreed. It was. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. So Kevin, <coughs> Kevin opens the discussion and then throws it out for discussion. Oh, so first these guys are lined up when I get there, 20 of them. They've got copies of my book. 
they want me to sign them, and I do. And they say how honored they are that I have come to come to their class. Nice. Uh, <laughs> that was not. I've never yet had students at the beginning of a course say how honored I, they are that I have come to teach them. <laughs> so anyway, so Kevin opens it up, and for the first ten or fifteen minutes, I have no idea what's going on. They're not talking about Waldorf theology or anything like that. And then finally, I go to what's going on. They are reading my lament as their lament. So this captures sort of what you said, Mike. It's their words. Um, they would read a passage, and then they would talk about how they had murdered their wife or killed their best friend and read another passage and so forth. Um, recently, I went back, and one of the guys, Sean, in that original class, said to me what has been what what is the most moving response I've ever received to anything I've written he said Nick he addressed me as Nick which I like not Professor Walterstorff Nick when we first read your book we were in grief but we did not know how to express our grief Nick you gave us the words for that we are thankful that has been for me the most moving as I say response I've ever received to something I've written, but, but it echoes what you said, Mike. Um, Nick, you gave us the word. So that's what was going on. Wow. Thank you for yeah, sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. That's powerful. Yeah. yeah. I think I read somewhere in your book kind of aligned with um, what what you said and where a lot of you've, you've, a lot of people have reached out to you after you're writing this book and um, think when you when writing it you're writing it from you know a father father's perspective that lost a son and again i apologize if i have this wrong but you you were i don't know surprised or that you were receiving maybe questions or or feedback or um you know people were reaching out that that maybe you didn't expect that yeah. that that uh, that this book resonated with, and that's a you know the prisoner example that you talked about is a, is a good example of that. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of that and what you've been surprised with after writing the book? Yeah, and, so so I so I wrote it as as an expression of my own grief because I was since I was accustomed to writing that was pretty much the only way I could deal with it but I also when I decided to publish it I thought it would be of um, some help probably to other people who have lost children and I've had a lot of letters to that effect but what also gradually became clear to me was that for lots of people it was it was a book about loss not necessarily loss of a child but loss of one kind or another, I shall never forget talking about living with grief in a church once, and then afterwards I was at the door, a woman came up to me and said my grief is that my son will never be what I hoped he would be and then she, then she rushed off and so I couldn't ask her what she meant, but it was hmm. clearly not death, but some other kind of thing and so that took me by surprise and these prisoners are you know, they are grieving over, well, all kinds of things, over killing their wife, their spouse, 
their best friend or their loss of freedom and so Another thing that took me really by surprise was um, Max Dupree, who was head of a furniture organ- furniture manufacturing company here just west of Grand Rapids, um, Herman Miller, good friend. I saw Max in an airport one morning reading Lament for a song. And um, so I said, Max, um, why are you doing that? Well, he said he'd given it to a copy to all of his children. Max, why did you do that? Well, said Max, you know, Nick, I did that because it's a love song. I had not thought of it as a love song, but that's what it is. It's a love song for Eric. Dang. You, um, you know, yeah, I... You capture, again, you capture, you know, so much emotion in the words that you write. I'm going to share kind of just some of my favorite parts that, I mean, just like I said, just really connected with me. This one we actually read several podcasts before, right after I read this, there was just like, oh, you got to hear this. I I read more of, of it last time, but just this last paragraph on page 13 also kind of gets to, I think, that that love that you're talking about and you said how can I be thankful in his goneness for what he was I find I am but the pain of the no more outweighs the gratitude of the once was will it always be so I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone his love like that and gosh I just when I read that it's like yes you absolutely captured you know that you, yep. you, you you know you have this um, yeah I think I, if for what it, for me what it captures is you you have so much gratefulness for for having the time that you had and you had 25 years with Eric I had 16 years with my yep. son Paul had 9 years with Sarah and you're so grateful for for that, you know, but yep. but the pain of of not having them here today and the pain of not having them forever beyond today, the the neverness, yep. right, that you're never, never. going to have them is um, is daunting, you know, you, even it, no matter how much you you can share how much you love your child, but that pain is so great and you captured I yep. think really well in that paragraph I'll second that yeah, Nick uh, when he read that a couple casts ago I was so touched by I don't know I hadn't heard a man speak that way or write that way and it made me want to read the rest of your book which I did and uh, I wasn't ready for you called it raw it was kind of a a little bit dark maybe the first time and then when you described that person telling you that it was Eric's love story it puts a whole new set of glasses on it and uh, I'm really man you have a gift for you have a gift it's a it's really well written and I am gonna recommend it to a lot of people so thanks again for sharing your story yeah. with us 
yeah, isn't that peculiar? It's a love song and it's a cry of grief, and it's both at once. Right, right. That's that's, uh, that's, that's crazy. Serious. It is. Yeah, it is crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. You know, you yeah. you lost Eric again, going on forty years. Paul, twenty-one, and you know, in my first year, and I think one of the things in the, in page fifteen, first paragraph, kind of captures. You know this where where I am today, and it kind of dovetails in the last one. And, and I'll read it again. It says, uh, or read it. It says, "It's the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us. Never to sit with us at the table. Never to travel with us. Never to laugh with us. Never to cry with us. Never to embrace us as he leaves for school. Never to see his brother, brothers and sisters marry. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death." can stop the pain of his death Hmm. and I bring that up um, because it's it's something that every day I try to I don't know comprehend I guess is that neverness it's you know you go through your whole life with your kids when they're around always visualizing what the future looks like with them visualizing their future for them and visualizing exactly. their future for you, like what what you want to be part of, and see them, you know, go exactly. to college and marry and have their own children, and see their successes and see their lives, mm-hmm. you know, mature and grow. And you, what you captured this that neverness is when you lose someone, especially a child, all that goes away. Their future for them goes away. Your future for for them, you know, as part of their future also goes away. And, you know, I'm 11 months plus, I'm still trying to come to grips with that. Where are you at 40 years later? And Paul, where are you at 21 years later with, I guess, coming to terms with that? I mean, this conversation brings it all back again. Um, so the best, so I guess the best way I can explain it is, so what you were saying, we, one invests oneself in, in one's children, um, hopes for their hopes, and aches for their aches, and so forth. And then that's all, that's all gone, and so it's like a, I have the sense of a huge chunk of my flesh being cut out of me. A big part of myself gone. There's a hole which which was my loves and hopes and dreams for Eric. And, uh, and so you have to live, learn to live around that gap, that hole. And slowly you, my sense is that slowly you learn to do that, to live around that hole, that gap. It's always there. It's not, eventually it's not always up front. But the strangest chain of associations can bring it all back again um, utterly un- unanticipated um, but you do learn to or my experience is you do learn to live around the gap you have to um, uh, well that's, <laughs> that's my image a right. big chunk of myself was ripped out that's a and I have to learn to live around that um, excellent that visual excellent image and you're exactly right you have to adapt and you have to adapt and I 
don't know, it took me years to find what to put in that giant hole. And then uh, I found a God component there. And I'm still kicking and I'm still living my life. And I thought I never would. So, yeah, it's just, uh, it's an adjustment. Well put. But it's my view that one should never... People talk about getting over it. Not a, um, not a thing. I, I just reject that. I think one should never get over it. If, if Eric was worth loving when alive, then he's worth grieving over when dead. And, 100% and, agree. And getting over it feels like the desecration to me. Like the, I hope no one like, would ever say that to someone that has lost anyone, let alone a child, to, oh, you'll get over it. I mean... Yeah, like you said, Nick, you'll get over it when your death comes around. That's when I'll get over it. Right. You know, we we did a podcast um, early on and talked a little bit about the kind of what do you say? What do you say to someone that has lost lost someone? And on page 34 and 35, I kind of highlighted a couple things that, that you said also that Again, well said, well written, that, that capture it. I'll read a couple parts of this. Um, it says, and if you can't think of anything at all to say, just say, and I love this, just say, I can't think of anything to say, but I want you to know that we are with you in your grief. Yep. And I think that's just so yep. simple that it's, it's honest. It's like there is, it's so... I think everyone struggles with the right words as if there are words that, you know, could somehow make it better. And I think, the, you know, yep. and you capture it this, you, you can't make it better, but those, yep. those words help you feel like they get it to a certain extent. They're with you. They're not, you know, they're with, they're with me. Yep. Yeah. And I like how you put, you know, put it to the, I can't find it on, but sit beside me on my morning bench. Mm. Yep. Um, I love that. One of, the, one of the things you also said in this that we talked about before was, you know, there's, in some cases, people don't know what to say to a certain, at, at a certain point, where so they won't say anything at all. They, they just are kind of frozen in that paralysis by analysis. Like, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to avoid or I'm not going to say anything at all. And, um, and you, you capture that and say, some, some say nothing because they find the topic too painful for themselves. They fear they will break down, so they put on a brave face and lid their feelings, never reflecting. I suppose that this adds new pain to the sorrow of their suffering friends. And then you said, I love this, this line, you said, your tears are salve on our wound your silence is salt. Hmm. And I love that because I think people are afraid to, you know, afraid that they might cry around you and, and create that emotion with you. And we've talked a lot about tears and crying and how that purge of tears actually is so, you know, relieving to have and part of the process. Yep. And when somebody cries with you, it it is salve on the wound you, and you and you it captured is, it so it well it, it's strange but it is yeah. Yeah. yeah 
Yeah, you have a you have a great way with words to capture some of these things. You know, as you reflect back on this book, I don't know how many times you've you've gone back and read it yourself after you after you wrote it. What are what are some of the things that make you most, I guess, proud or when you look back on the book, what what resonates still with you that you feel just proud of? Well, uh, <laughs> when I do go back and read it or read parts of it, I have the feeling how did those words ever come to me? <laughs> um, how did how did I ever say that? I felt it, but how did I manage to say it? So it's that's, I mean that's a real mystery to me. How and how I how I managed to write the book is a mystery to me. Put it like that. And this is way before Chat GPT, so you actually wrote it, not a computer, yes, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, yes, be assured, be assured. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how how those metaphors of salve and salt? Uh, when you read them again to me, I say, "Boy, that's that's right." How those metaphors came to me, I I don't know. Huh. I mean. Philosophy is, by and large, not a metaphorical enterprise. Um, so, I don't know. I'm thankful and baffled. Yeah, thankful and baffled. And every time you read it, you're surprised by... Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 I'm surprised, yep. Wow. Was it Was it Nick Walterstorff who wrote this book? Huh. Yeah. And, it's, it's and this is... Um, you, you wrote this quite a long time ago. Um, I, what... It was like twelve. No, twelve. Yeah. What what, what year was it? That you wrote. I was. I think in the pre- preface you were saying. I think it's copyrighted. eighty five, isn't it? I haven't checked. So. Okay. Yeah. Somewhere in so, there. Um, yeah. So fairly yeah. soon after Nick's death, am I right? Or Eric's death? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So. Um. So I began writing in that Luxembourg airport. I doubt that anything I wrote there survived into the book, but that's when I began writing it, and um, as I, I wonder if I say in the preface to the book, um, at one point, so so I would write these short fragments, and uh, it was on a typewriter in those days, I didn't yet have a computer, hmm. at one point I thought, well, I should really um, sort of unify these things in, into a... Uh, discursive thread and I couldn't I absolutely couldn't so they remain fragments um, I think of the white space as silence so there's not there's not a lot of chatter um, that's sort of how it so I I wrote it over the course of oh, a year and a half maybe something like that as, as something would occur to me I'd go to the typewriter and write out that brief passage and then assemble them into some sort of into an order that seemed to me to sort of flow and um, that's how it happened it's not how I write other things (laughs) did you know when it was done what's that did you know when it was done when you had all of that you needed to say no that's an interesting question it's never occurred to me but the answer is yes um how did I know it was done? I think because... Wow, I like that question. I haven't thought about it. I think it was because 
for several weeks, maybe months, no new passages occurred to me. Huh. And so I thought, uh, it's, it's done. It's, the words that were going to come to me have come, so um, I'll draw a conclusion. And then you huh. sought out a publisher, or how did you... What was next? Well, I was good. I was good friends with the people at Erdman, so that was no problem. Oh, nice. Paul, Paul's um, asking because he keeps talking about writing a book. Yeah. He's been <laughs> been talking about writing a book for years. Talked for a long time. <laughs> so he's yeah. I love. Maybe this will inspire Paul to get get. Maybe it will. Get typing. Love it. So I I was good friends with the people at Erdman's. They were downtown Grand Rapids, and one day I went to their plant, their offices. And there on a wooden pallet was a pile of, of, of copies of Lament for a Son, my, my first sight of it. And I had this strange feeling of being on a gurney in a hospital with my guts exposed and people walking oh, past and I'll bet. staring at my intestines. And I <laughs> wow. thought, I, I can see it, I can see it today. I thought, what have I done? What have I done? Another good visual for us. Well, we yeah. can, we can relate to that to a certain extent um, with this podcast. Yeah, that this we, podcast that we started slayed us right open. Is uh, oh, you know we're talk we talk about you know in 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 similar ways that you write so well. We try to talk about where you know where where we are at a given time and digesting our own grief and going through this, and then we'll have people that we. I mean, at least me at people that show up and say, hey, I've been listening to your podcast and that feeling of being completely exposed and vulnerable and like, yeah. oh, yeah. you know, like, uh, it, it's, uh, so I can relate to, oh, to yeah. that to a certain extent. So what about yeah. you, Paul? Yeah. Yeah. Totally relate to that. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, good stuff. I, I have so many other passages and questions and things like that i just you know we have we, we try to keep this this podcast to 45 minutes or less so do you have any other books planned in your future or was and and i well i'm assuming this was your last book but i don't i don't know that for sure so oh yeah no it was by no means my since then i've written written quite a few philosophy books but okay. one that's connected to this it's going to take me two or three minutes to explain Sure. Um, so after I wrote and published Lament for a Son, I would get invitations to talk about living with grief. So I, used, I often accepted those invitations. I would give a 45-minute talk or something like that. I never volunteered for any such talk, um, but I would give a talk. People would urge me to publish what I said. I didn't. For reasons that have never been clear to me, I didn't want to do that. Hmm. Um, then in 93, I gave three lectures at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena on living with grief. Um, my other talks had always been 45 minutes. This was, they had, a, they had a named lectureship, I forget what it was, and they asked me to talk about that. So I talked about three lectures. Uh, the listeners once again said, you should really publish this. I didn't. I didn't want to, I, and I don't know why I didn't want to, so I didn't. So, um, 
four months ago. Uh, somebody, uh, a retired chaplain at Calvin who was teaching in this Calvin Prison Initiative that I mentioned in Hanlon Prison, said that he had come across the, in his files the text of the lectures that I gave it for. Could he distribute those to the men in his class of Hanlon? And he doesn't know how it is that he had the text of my lectures, and I looked in my files and could not find the text of those lectures. So he gave those lectures to the men in Hanlon about three, four months ago. They were very enthusiastic. So that prompted me finally to get off the dime and work them up for publication. So I've done that. I then sent, sent it to, sent it by email attachment to Dale Cooper and he uh, sent copies to his students in Hanlon Prison and invited me to come when they discussed this revised version. So I went, and um, wow. So in this Living with Grief, I say that we should do our best to own rather than disown our grief. It's make it part of our story instead of just trying to put it behind us and get over it and so forth. And if possible, it isn't always possible to own our grief redemptively so that some good comes out of this tragedy. So then I invited those guys to discuss, is it possible to own your grief redemptively in prison? It was a, hmm. it was a stunning discussion. I mean, these guys are very open no doubt. about their grief. So I've dedicated the book to them. Uh, it's not, it's, I haven't sent it off to a publisher yet. In the preface I wrote, I have learned from you men that a prison is a house of grief. And in the course of that discussion, one of the guys, one of the prisoners raised his hand and said, Nick, a prison is not a house of grief. A prison is a warehouse. Ooh, that wow. me off, isn't that? Huh. So, um, so I've written that. Then five of them undertook to, in their rooms, write out their own ways of owning grief, their grief in prison. So I'm going to include those five narrations in the published book. So, within a year or two, whatever. That'll be a good read to look forward living, to. Living with grief. Yeah. Nice. Is that going to be the title? Living with grief. Yeah. Yeah. And in about a year, you think that'll come out? Usually takes about a year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, keep us updated. We will okay. <laughs> love to get a copy of that. And I was going to ask you. Yeah. In addition to be a writer, I assume you're also a reader. What are some grief books or books that have helped you in your 40-year journey um, over the years? Anything that you would recommend uh, to Paul and I or any of our listeners? You know, almost none. Um, The books on the psychology of grief I cannot understand because I... They distracted me from Eric into looking at this process. Um, 
There's um, C.S. Lewis's book, Because We've Observed. I find that a little bit annoying because Lewis sort of puts himself up front. So. God, this is C.S. Lewis talking. Um, there's one when the air... There are very few. Why do you um, think that is, Nick? I mean, it affects yeah, everybody so eventually, people. right? But why? Yes. What do you think is the missing piece in why, I don't know, for me, I mean, your, your book really resonated, but why do you feel there's, there's not a lot out there that, that has, have resonated with you? don't have a good explanation for that. So that's a really good question. So, Helmut Thielicke is a really vivid German theologian wrote about grief, but so so many of these books are about grief. I didn't want to think about grief. I was in grief. So, thinking about the psychology of grief, so many of them are about that. Many of them, um, oh, there's a book by somebody who lost a wife and child in a, I think the state of Washington accident, Seltzer or something like that. So that's pretty good. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. Why do you think it is? Yeah, I would, I would say the same thing. I mean, there's a couple books that we've talked about on the podcast that were, I'll speak for myself, valuable for me. Um, but they were written in a similar vein to yours. It wasn't about the psychology of grief or the stages of grief. I don't, I didn't need to hear that. And I still don't need to hear that because I'm living that. Exactly. Books like yours and grieving dads is a book that I read this summer shortly after Braden was killed. Um, into the valley and out again was was a book that Paul gave me that he he was given that's a short read it's also but also a book similar to yours it's it's about it's it's real it's raw and it's about it's a a dad it's a cry of grief brother I say my book is not about grief it's a cry of grief yeah yeah nice it's actually and and so for for me when I read those types of books that are written by a parent that have lost a child it, and they're sharing the words in their own in their own words what their experience was like for me what it helps is put words into feeling i mean feelings into words and then also helps you not feel alone in your in your journey and exactly. that's so much of exactly. what, what your book did, did for us exactly. and and really that's exactly. also what we hope this podcast will do as well is is resonate with with people that either don't have an experienced grief and maybe give them a sh- you know a bit of an insight of what, what might it be like and yep. and then also for those that are um, hopefully connect with them so that they um, don't feel alone in their in their journey as well so yeah yeah. Well, Nick, we're going to wrap it up. Um, like I said, we're usually right around 45 minutes. We don't want to prolong it. Um, man, I, I could spend more, much more time chatting with you and you sound like, you know, just your insight and uh, wisdom and, and experience is, is, has been valuable reading through it. You know, we, valuable. I mean, we didn't even get into 
some of your faith focused um, narrative that you, you share in your book. I would like to have had more discussion on that. Um, so maybe yeah. perhaps yeah. we can do a part two um, and discuss that and maybe at another time. But yeah. anyway, you, I just really appreciate your time today and, and uh, the work that you did to put this book together. So thank you yeah. again so much for joining Paul and I. And thank you very much for the conversation. I'll second that, Nick. Uh, very, very informative and uh, easy to talk to. I like, uh, I like your answers, and maybe we can do it again after your next, your next book comes out. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you very much. All right. God bless, Nick. Take care, and uh, thank you. Same to you. All right, thanks again. All, All right. right. Bye bye. Peace. Yeah.